Hello, welcome back to the How Might We podcast. So I'm just going to jump straight into things today. This episode is with Gustav Kuhn, and it's entitled How Might We Know Our Minds Through Magic. Gustav is a reader in psychology at Goldsmiths University. He's the president of the Science of Magic Association and has consulted public science exhibitions with Wellcome Trust and his work is covered in the BBC, Wired uh, and plenty others. Uh, Gustav is the author of a really fascinating book, I think, called Experiencing the Impossible, the Science of Magic. And today we go into some of the really revealing insights of his work. It's really fun how a conversation about magic can then help us to explore uh, really sort of important topics like free will and consciousness and morals and manipulation, um, all, all from talking about magic tricks, really. So I found this great, and Gustav is just as entertaining as he is insightful and accessible. Uh, which makes for a great conversation partner. Uh, there's two minutes with a few audio glitches. It's about 45 minutes into the podcast, uh, but then it's all good again and the glitches are minor. So just be patient through through that tiny section. That's just a little note. Um, and as ever, if you enjoy this podcast, please give it a positive rating on iTunes. I'd appreciate that. Uh, subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at johnbarnes.me forward slash newsletter. And click the support button on my website if you'd like to support on a pay-what-you-want monthly basis. Your support means a lot, and over time it contributes to getting more great guests like Gustav and to be able to do more of this with higher quality. So thank you so much for your support so far, and thanks for listening. Um, but with no further ado, let's just jump into things here. So let's, ju- let's um, jump into my conversation about the science of magic and our minds and this is with Gustav Kuhn. Enjoy. All right. Thanks for joining me today, Gustav. Hello. Cheers. So um, I, I'm really, I'm really excited to speak to you because, uh, well, we're talking about magic, and it's not very, it's not very often I, I get to talk to someone for ages about magic. So I think that's going to be quite fun. Um, I've, I've just finished reading your book, Experiencing the Impossible. So um, I've, got, uh, I've got all sorts of notes to go and dig deeper into your brain. Um, before we do that, though, just some context for people listening, uh, is that today I assume we're going to be straddling two fields that might seem at odds with each other, um, but I doubt they'll feel at odds with each other by the end of this conversation. That's magic and science. Um, so before before we go into um, all the rabbit holes that we'll no doubt jump jump through, uh, can you just tell us a little bit more about how? I mean, how did you end up uh, being both a magician and a scientist? What's your What's your story? Well, my story i I really got into. I, I was always fascinated by magic, even as a small kid. But I probably got into magic when I was about fourteen, and I started exploring lots of tricks and illusions with one of my best friends at the time, Martha Rocha. And we got into magic, reading magic books from libraries and then gradually got connected to the magic societies. And that really became our passion during most of my teenage years. I spent pretty much every minute of my life just dedicated to this weird and wonderful world of, of deception and illusion. 
And uh, I then, I grew up in Switzerland and at the age of about 19, I moved to England to try and start a career as a professional magician, which turned out to be more challenging than I thought it was. And so that actually got me into academia because even as a magician, I was always really interested in a lot of the psychological principles that magicians use to create their illusions. And so I felt if I want to really improve my magic, I need to understand how the brain works. And that led me to study psychology at university. I then did a PhD in consciousness. And towards the end of my PhD, I realized that a lot of the questions that psychologists were interested in were very similar to kind of concepts that magicians use. My PhD was in consciousness, but if you think about attention, it's a central topic in cognitive psychology and magicians have developed really powerful ways of manipulating your attention, similar with deception or free will. And that really then led to a change in a lot of my research and that I started to scientifically investigate how magicians misdirect people's attention. And we played around with eye trackers to measure where people were looking whilst they were being misdirected. And at the time, there was very little past research on the science of magic. And so it was very, it's pretty hard to actually get a lot of this work published. Um, but for the last 15 years or so, I've been really trying to use magic as a way of studying a wide range of psychological topics from perception to why people believe in magic. We're looking at free will and the way that magicians can exploit our illusory sense of free will and even looking at some of the positive impacts that magic can have um, in that we can teach people to perform magic tricks and look at how we can exploit some of the really positive psychological experiences that magic can elicit and so now i'm really I'm, I'm the director here at goldsmiths university of london of the magic lab in which we use magic to study a whole range of psychological principles this is fun. So you get to be a professor and a magician at the same time. Yeah, in, in some ways I've managed to combine both, yeah, both of these lives um, in that I'm still closely connected to magic, but I'm actually now studying why magic works rather than just using it for, for, for entertainment. Out of interest, what do your, you've got two types of colleagues, I'm guessing there. You've got purist magicians and purist scientists perhaps and, and i'm sure there's there's some like you some oddballs who straddle both but how do those two sets of colleagues see the work you're doing <laughs> this is a very topical question right <laughs> it's a little bit too topical almost um let me start with the scientists that that took quite some time i've been doing this research for more than 15 years and right at the beginning, most scientists just thought, well, magic looks fun, it looks interesting, but there may not necessarily be that much scientific value. I think we've managed to convince the scientific, or large part of the scientific community otherwise, and that now the science of magic has really become a study of its own. We have a science of magic association, which bridges this gap between magic and science. We're holding conferences, which have been attended by nearly a hundred people. So, and a lot of these findings are now published in leading scientific journals and even textbooks on psychology as well. So I think in the last 15 years, we've really seen just this massive expansion of research into magic and it's become a much more acceptable approach. 
And I think this is really important for the field in general because when I, as a interested, as as a magician, studied psychology, nobody had really done any of this, and it was very difficult to convince my supervisors to take on a project like this. And what we're finding now is, as the science of magic is becoming more established, a lot of younger people are joining are, are joining this field. Mm, so I think. Until, sorry, carry on. Yeah, until about two weeks ago. <laughs> I would have, <laughs> until about two weeks ago, most magicians have been really very positive about the science of magic. And we're always very careful to avoid telling people how the secrets are done and unless it's really, unless it's very, very necessary because we all really enjoy magic and magic does rely on a certain amount of secrecy. Um, however, I'm currently just being investigated by the Magic Circle Exposure Committee um, because there are some people in the Magic Circle, which is the UK-based, one of the UK-based magic clubs I'm a member of, um, who would really like to get rid of me in there because I have been exposing some of these experimental paradigms that we use in an exhibition called Smokes and Mirror, which is organised by the Welcome collection um, and on television as well so i think most magicians agree that there's a lot of value in doing this but there are some magicians who fear that by revealing the secrets of how magic is done we are breaking the magic code and they should be expelled from their secret societies right okay so you're in the the midst of that that conversation oh, yeah, at the moment i have literally just come off the phone um talking to the one of the people from the exposure committee <laughs> so, um, yes okay well best of, best of luck with that i hope it i hope it goes your way i think what you're well, doing i think great. the majority i mean i think the majority of magicians are very supportive of this and we have partnered up with the world magic organization as well so FISM, which is the world magic organization is official partner with the science of magic association so generally magicians are quite supportive of this okay i mean you you mentioned just in your in your intro really the uh the reasons i'm interested in magic as well which is that it seems like a really f well it's very fun uh, but also very accessible and quite a singular entry point into huge questions um so you know you 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 can it is very uh it's very possible that you can start a conversation with card tricks and end up with topics like free will uh, consciousness reality um morals around manipulation uh, etc so it it really feels like it's it's a neat way into discussing lots of really important topics for me yeah i think you're touching a really important point here i mean most of the work we're doing is for from a purely scientific perspective but i think in terms of starting a lot of these conversations i think magic can be really useful because as you say it really deals with some of the most fundamental questions um it deals with consciousness it deals with free will belief and a lot of these concepts especially in cognitive psychology are really quite difficult to grasp um i teach cognitive psychology here at goldsmiths and a lot of our students struggle with cognitive psychology because it deals with very complex and abstract principles. But magic allows us to illustrate a lot of these principles in very powerful ways. And I think it can be used as a great teaching tool to not only start conversations, 
but also to illustrate how the human brain works. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually run the odd little workshop around cognitive biases, um, and, and uh, the aim being for people to be able to notice their own biases. And the problem is that can be incredibly boring or theoretical if, if not done uh, well. And actually, the best way to do it is maybe to have a magician in the room to, to show us some of those biases so that they, they're no longer textbook things, but things that we can, we can associate with a real experience. So it feels magic has a, a particularly sort of uh, power to illustrate these these glitches in the mind yeah no i fully agree and i mean this is what really inspired me to write this book as well because for me magic provides a beautiful way of illustrating how the brain works a lot of cognitive psychology a lot of psychology we've learned a lot by understanding why people make mistakes and magic really pushes a lot of these systems to their limits and magic relies on us making cognitive errors and so by exploring how magic works that can provide us with amazing insights really into how the human brain works and it can illustrate these in much more understandable and through understandable concepts i mean attention is a really complex principle and most students find attention and visual perception really really boring Um, but i think once you've been tricked by a magic trick that will automatically, you start to wonder how it is that your brain can be so easily manipulated. And that curiosity will hopefully help people to try and find out more about how the human brain works. And I think once you actually look at, once you actually look at the mechanisms that are responsible for these illusions, you realize just how magical the human brain itself is. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because uh, so there there are plenty of anecdotes in your book actually that uh, some I'd heard of and some I was like, what really? Uh, so it's particularly around perception, uh, maybe you can take us through just just some of the highlights of of that section of your work and that part of your research around around perception. What in terms of perception? Yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, so magic, magic, magic works because magicians hijack large parts of your brain and they allow they've identified really clever psychological tricks to manipulate how you experience the world and in many many ways magic is not that similar not that dissimilar to a lot of the other illusions that we experience during during our daily lives and the more we're starting to learn about the human brain the more we've come to realize that in actual fact really all of our experience of the world and even of ourselves is really just a very elaborate illusion. And so all that magicians really need to do is they just point out this discrepancy between reality and this illusion. And this happens on lots of different levels. So we can think about this from a perceptual point of view. So the amount that you simply perceive. Now, as I'm looking around, I'm sitting in my office, if I'm looking around my office, I feel like I'm aware of most of the things that are going on around me. And yet, as we're learning more about the brain, we've come to realize that this is really an illusion because in actual reality, this the, the representation that we have of the outside world is full of gaps and holes. It's just that we're not aware of these holes. And this is what magic relies on. It exploits the fact that you feel that you're aware of your surrounding, yet you're clearly not. Yeah, and some of your, so I guess, I think we're all aware that we're not seeing the whole picture, but some of the research you've shared 
Well, certainly for me, I found myself, I was, re- was reading this in bed and I kept, I kept stopping my wife to say, wait, wait a minute, do you know, do you know this about the mind? Um, so I think, I think one of them was about uh, the amount of your day that you don't see because of what, what I thought, are they, st- uh, I forget the name. St- Psychotic depression. Yeah, That's this right. Is a, <laughs> so this is a really surprising fact and it's quite hard to really conceptualize when, unless you really do the maths. But I mean, our, Again, as I, as I said, we, we experience the world as just this full of rich sensory detail, yet it is full of gaps. Um, so one of them, one of these gaps occurs because of saccadic suppression, um, which is basically the mechanism by which the visual brain switches off every time you move your eyes. And uh, to understand this gap, you need to understand how the visual system works. So we can think of the eye as, as the eye is basically like a, an elaborate camera that captures visual information. But every time your eyes move, it turns off. And this makes a lot of sense because of course, if you're going to try and take a picture with a moving camera, you get a really blurry image, which is completely useless. And so rather than bombarding the brain with this useless information, it just turns off during that time. Now, right, because otherwise you'd just be having a blurred, a mainly blurred day. Yeah, and you can illustrate, you can try this at home as well because you'll never be able to see your own eyes move. And you can try this, you can try this by standing in front of a mirror, try to look from one side of the mirror to the other and try and spot your eyes move. And if you can, you can send me an email and I'll, I'll send you a thousand pounds. You just won't be able to do this. Um, you can see other people's eyes move but you'll never be able to see your own eyes move because of this saccadic suppression. So because the visual system shuts down during that, during each of these eye movements. And it's about, we can measure this and it's about, a, it's about a 10th of a second. So a hundred milliseconds. Now you might think that's not really that much, but we move our eyes about three times per second, which means we make about 150,000 eye movements per day. So if you multiply that, by the duration during which our eyes are offline, that accounts for about four hours of darkness, which is about a quarter of your day. Yet we're completely oblivious to this. And these are many of these really amazing facts and that we feel like our visual system is constantly online. And I think it's very hard for us to imagine that in actual fact, a quarter of our day, we just spend in darkness. I mean, I think it's really astonishing. Um, and magicians exploit the lots of these types of limitations to create their illusions. I mean, with the uh, with that saccadic, what what did you call it? Saccadic. So it's, this is called saccadic suppression. Saccadic suppression. Uh, yeah. When I when I went to do because you mentioned the mirror test in your book, and what I mean, it, it is just super creepy when you go and look at your own eyes in the mirror. What what I found most interesting is that. You, really, you don't notice that you really don't feel a lapse at all. You know, so it, it's just the, the experience I have when looking at my eyes in the mirror is that they don't move like they're, I, I feel like I'm almost having an eye, an eye movement failure when in fact it's just that it's, um, it's suppressing that piece of information uh, yeah. and considering it useless essentially. Yeah. And And I mean that, and that's just one of many of these gaps. And again, this is what my book is really built on is trying to, I mean, the saccadic suppression is not necessarily a principle that magicians can exploit because it's quite hard to time a magic effect just to that small gap. Um, 
but the same occurs really at lots of different levels so even from an intentional point of view even that even when you're actually not moving your eyes it turns out that actually we're only processing a very limited amount of information and so unless you're actually really attending to something you simply won't be able to see it yeah and and so can you take us through some of the tricks and maybe some of the studies um that illustrate this because the the thing that came out for me is that magicians actually offer a great opportunity for science to test theories in that they're able they're able to really i mean they're they're, they're in some sense constantly running experiments on people uh, yeah and, and and that's and you can you can benefit from that as a science scientist and i th- i think a lot of your examples were about that manipulation or 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 a misdirection of attention somehow yeah so so one of my initial motivations for studying magic was I thought, as scientists, we test a lot of these principles in the lab. So we have an idea about how attention works, for example, and uh, we design an experiment and we get participants in to carry out these tasks and we evaluate their behavior and we use that to evaluate our theories. In some ways, magicians use a very similar approach, though much less formal, in that they may have an an idea about how a trick works and they develop their misdirection based on this idea and then they perform their magic tricks. Now, if the idea is wrong, then the magic trick won't work and the trick will fail. So in some ways that process is very similar to what we scientists do and I think this has allowed them to, over generations, develop really rich information, really rich applied knowledge about how a lot of these psychological principles do. And in a lot of our research, we try and tap into this expertise to see whether we can use this to learn more about how the human brain works. And then um, if we think about attentional misdirection, a lot of the studies we've done carrying, this is quite hard to do in a podcast because it deals with visual attention. So you'd almost have to see it, but um, I encourage you, if you haven't seen it, you can type into YouTube misdirection trick or lighter trick, or if you go to the the Magic Lab website um, at Goldsmiths, you can download quite a lot of these examples to see. So the lighter trick is an example where I use misdirection to prevent you from seeing a lighter that's being dropped right in front of your hand, uh, right in front of your eyes. And it's it's not a magic trick because magicians wouldn't really use these types of methods because it's completely obvious once you know how it's done. Um, But what it illustrates is that magicians can very effectively manipulate what you attend to and therefore manipulate what you actually see and what you don't. And what we found with a lot of these studies is that people see much less than they intuitively think they would see. And am I right that one of, one of those simple tricks, let's say, I don't know if I'm, if I'm patronizing the, the art form by calling it a trick, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick to it for now, um, is, is that a magician simply looking somewhere else can captivate a whole, a whole crowd's attention whilst they replace an object with another or... Or lose a lighter. Yeah, so I mean, magicians. So we use lots of different types of attentional techniques, and they're often combined in really clever ways. A very, a very powerful one is social relies on social attention. So this is using your gaze, so using what you are looking at to orchestrate where others will attend to. And in psychology, this is known as social attention. So if I'm looking at an object, then that will actually automatically 
result in people's attention being shifted towards that object. So if I'm looking at a cup in my table, most people will then also look at that cup. And that's a very powerful cue that magicians can use to manipulate your attention. And we've carried out lots of work investigating the exact mechanism by which this social attention works. But that's not the only one. I mean, usually we combine lots of different cues. So I can maybe move my arm as well or move my fingers in this lighter trick. I also snap my fingers. So you've got an auditory cue as well. Everything puts together to catch that, that, was, that will capture your attention. And therefore, I can use that to manipulate your attention. But I think one thing to point out is that is often, I mean, the reason why these principles work is because our brains are very, very efficient. So processing visual information requires lots of cognitive resources. Um, and by cognitive resources, I mean that requires neurons in our brain that need to be fed with energy and food and so rather than processing all of the information there's been a strong evolutionary drive to to evolve very efficient processes that allow us to do these tasks with less resources and attention does a great job at that so what attention does it allows us to really prioritize the things that are important to us at a particular point in time and so rather than processing everything we just select the stuff that's actually of importance. And we use lots of automatic cues to help us do so. So for example, social attention, so following someone's gaze is actually a really effective strategy because if we're having a conversation and I am looking at something, it's likely that the object that I'm looking at is of importance to me and therefore it's also of importance to you as well. So it's a really useful strategy to actually look at objects that I'm that that I'm being lo- that I'm I'm looking at. So this is kind of known as um, uh, as uh, shared attention, and so magic exploits a lot of these attentional principles. And so you said um, before this that did you say that you studied consciousness before um, before doing yes, all this? Yes, consciousness work? is all part of this as well. So in terms of what people then be actually become consciously aware of. Right. Okay. And so I'm I'm curious as to I mean, this may be a, a rabbit hole that's too deep for this. I don't know. I'll, I'll let you decide. But um, to what degree has your research recently affected your sort of worldview, I guess, when it when it comes to to topics like consciousness or 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 like sh- shared reality in that a lot of your findings seem to suggest that far more of what we think we see uh, is is generated by our own minds than than by objective reality, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's highlighted two really important things. For one, is highlighted that we're often wrong about the way we believe the brain to work. Um, in that, a lot of our intuitions really are wrong, and this lies at the crux of magic because magic allows you to experience the impossible, and of course to do so what magicians do is they exploit lots of interesting psychological tricks but if you be aware of these tricks the magic wouldn't work anymore because you just go well yeah it's my brain that's being tricked um and that would rob us of the experience that you have when you're actually watching a magic trick so magic only works 
because we're unaware of a lot of these limitations. The other thing is just that our experience of the world is much more subjective than we intuitively think it is. And we can look at this on so many different levels. I mean, so far we've just talked about the amounts that we see, but we can also relate it to actually the things that we do see. So just because you're actually seeing something doesn't mean that that's a truthful representation of the world, because as you look at a, an object, like a visual illusions, for example, illustrate that in actual fact, the way that you experience the world is much more related to the way that you believe the world actually is rather than the way um, the, the, the way that, that, that it truly is. So our perception is highly, is highly subjective and the same with memory as well so there's lots of research now on false memory and this is a principle that's often exploited in magic in that we can remember things that haven't actually happened and so just because you're remembering something doesn't mean you've actually experienced it and even things like free will i mean we take free will so for granted it's so central to who we are and yet research on magic and neuroscience is now illustrating that even the sense of free will that we have may indeed be an illusion. So just because you experience something or you believe you've experienced something doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it was. Mm, you've just given me a, a few different uh, routes to go down. Maybe I'll try and close each door off one by one. The first was I, I just a, a curious thing came up in my mind. Magicians experience magic less easily, I'm guessing, than a, than a naive audience, correct? Yes. I mean, I think, yes. There's, um, Would that go for other uh, parts of the world where our mind uh, is filling in the gaps as well? Or... Well, I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, everybody, I mean, everybody's perception of the world is very unique and everybody sees the world or experiences the world very differently. Um, because our perception of the world is based on our beliefs. And since we've all got different beliefs, that implies that we're all seeing it differently as well. And as a magician, you will have different knowledge about how the brain can be tricked by different magic tricks. So when I watch a magician, I have a much a better understanding of what they are doing than you probably do. And so I can anticipate what they do. I can recognize different things. And so it's a lot harder probably for me to be fooled than for you to be fooled. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that I'm not tricked by magic tricks. I mean, there's a lot of, I'm often tricked. There's a lot of tricks. I have absolutely no idea how they're done. Um, and there's a whole range of magic tricks that are specially just designed to fool other magicians as well. So it doesn't mean that you're not, that you can't be tricked. Um, so in the context of magic, there's definitely really big differences. More generally, in terms of illusions, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. I don't know whether magicians, because they are more experienced at looking out for trickery and looking out for deception, whether they are less deceived by other illusions that, that, I, don't, that I simply don't know. Yeah, I find that interesting, whether the skills a magician is nurturing uh, for themselves uh, you know, it's e it's easy to see how that would make you experience magic differently for the most part, at least that some tricks would be obvious to you and wouldn't be to me. It's really interesting yeah. as to whether that could translate to other situations in life where, for instance, you you might be letting a bias. Uh, you, I'm thinking of like um, all the nonsense people say on social media nowadays and all the biases that we we just fall fall into very reliably. Uh, as to whether a magician would be less likely to fall into them or not. 
I mean, my intuition is that they would probably be just as likely. We have got, we did study, that was several years ago, um, we published a paper in which we looked at magicians' deceptive abilities through pantomime actions. Now, normal people are really bad at pantomiming, and the reason they're really bad at pantomiming is because a pantomime action is driven by a different neural system to a real grasping action. And what we showed was that even in a different context, magicians, their their pantomime actions are much more closely related to real grasps than, um, than for non-magicians, which suggests that some of these deceptive strategies can extrapolate to different domains as well. But I mean, that's still within sleight of hand and the extent to which that will that'll, um, translate to, to, to in other fields, I simply don't know. I mean, I know from myself, I think um, I'd like to consider myself as being an expert in deception, but I'm just as fooled by a lot of these kind of like tricks and biases um, and even, a few months ago, I sent some money to Nigeria because I was completely taken in by some internet. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, I'd like to believe that um, a lot of this knowledge protects yourself from that kind of deception. But maybe you're just a really nice guy, Gustav. Maybe, uh, yeah. I, I, that, that, that's a nice way of putting yeah, it. <laughs> I, I, I would just take that as the as the reason for this. Um, okay, I mean, because the, the one of the reasons I was thinking about this is that. We might get in onto this topic of susceptibility at some point that some some people with hip, hypnosis, for instance, the, the hypnotist, if that's the right word, tends to tends to choose people highly susceptible um, to, to being manipulated. And one thought that crossed my mind, I, I study meditation, mindfulness meditation quite a lot. Um, and one of the key uh, goals, although you're not allowed to say that you've got goals when you're doing this stuff, is uh, <laughs> is that you you end up in this like cyclical conversation. But uh, but one of the goals is to be able to direct your attention uh, more more effectively uh, and with with greater control over your attention. And so it started making me wonder if you did these kind of studies on different types of people. Let's say some let's say an extremely experienced meditator or magician, for that matter. Uh, versus a naive audience, as I, I think you you call them in in your book, people like me. If you would, yeah. um, if, if you would see differences in in their ability to to see a sort of more accurately what's going on in front of their eyes. Yeah, I, I think it really is very much context dependent. I mean, I think every, I, I mean, as I said, everybody will experience things differently. Um, but I mean, what's interesting is that I think a lot of these principles still work for magicians as well. So the lighter trick, for example, you think, I mean, it, it, it isn't, it's not a real magic trick, but it exploits a lot of these principles. And actually, a lot of magicians still fall for it as well. So just knowing about misdirection doesn't really prevent you from actually being able to counter some of these biases. And I think that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the challenges really in that quite a lot of these principles, similar with the cognitive biases, they happen automatically. And so even if you actually know about them, I mean, it can give you some, a bit of protection against them, um, but it's it's quite hard. And I think especially once they, once you're encountering the same principle in a different context, um, it becomes very difficult. Mm, yeah, I'm curious about this. Recently, I heard uh, an interview of Daniel Kahneman where he said 
that he he believed that his research on cognitive biases made him exactly as likely to fall into all the traps as anybody else. Um, yeah, and, and that's, I think that's probably right. I think that's. Um, I mean, this. I mean, this is one of the big problems in general in, in psychology more generally, like particularly for a lot of rehabilitation, is that you can train someone up in a particular in a, in a specific domain, but that doesn't necessarily then translate into other domains as well so just because you know something doesn't really protect you from yeah it doesn't really protect you i guess my my instinctive um opinion on that so this isn't backed by anything but my 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 instinct is that some my basic research into these areas i think makes me just as likely to operate according to all my biases in a live situation um but i i think i do put some measures in place like so premeditated measures in place to overcome say my confirmation bias or, or something. So for instance, I might on a project seek some diversity of opinion when planning the project just to stop me from falling into the bias. But in the live situation, I'm just as, you know, I'm a puppet too. But yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's where science, that's why science is so important um, in, in, in all domains really, because I think, a lot of our decisions are so heavily influenced by emotion and a lot of these biases that the only way in which you can really get an objective view is by actually collecting data, collecting objective data and then evaluating that data to make a much more, yeah, to try and avoid these biases. But of course, even in science, I mean, confirmation bias is so deeply ingrained in that most scientists try to prove their theories rather than proving them wrong. So it's very difficult to abandon these biases. Mm. So a, a topic, perhaps we can, this will lead us on a bit to this topic of free will, that, which you've brought up a few times already. Um, I thought a good entry point into, into that one, just because it's, it's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one, that one, is, um, is uh, perhaps you can just illustrate some of your doubts around or the, the, the extent to which free will exists um, through some illustrations of some magic um, performances, I thought. So you, you've specifically, in your book, you mention a magician's ability to create or change memories for an audience, I believe. And then there's the topic of hypnosis and mind control more generally. Yeah. So if you could just use that as an entry point and then we'll, we'll get on to free will perhaps more broadly after that. Okay, so if we start with memory, um, I mean, I already alluded to this in that we like to think of the things that we remember as events that we have genuinely experienced. And a lot of our, a lot of who we are is based on memory. I mean, without memory, we wouldn't really be anyone. Um, and particularly if we think about, our, or we think about eyewitness testimonies, they carry a lot of weight. However, as we're learning more about memory, we've come to realize that memory, the human memory doesn't work like a computer memory. In a computer memory, you input some data and then it's stored, it's stored somewhere um, in its exact form and then later on you recall it and unchanged memory is reproduced. The human brain is very different in that we encode the information and then it's stored within much a broader con much broader constructs and then recall of a memory you're not actually recalling the memory itself it's all a reconstructed 
process. Um, and that's really useful because what it really means is that we can store vast amounts of information with relatively few resources. And it also means it's very easy to access a lot of this information. And these are all tasks that are essential for our survival. So um, if you th if you just... just... Just so I understand you correctly there, are you saying that um, our memory or the way in which we remember is that we actually take a very small... It actually takes a very small amount of of data on our hard drive, so to speak, because it's not capturing the whole intact memory the way a computer would. Yes, and because exactly. that's a small amount, we can recall it, but in the recalling process, we're actually, in some senses, building a new memory from, from scratch each time we, we access that piece of data. Yes, exactly. So if you're gonna go to your friend's house and you go into his kitchen, you don't necessarily encode all of the information about that particular kitchen. You use a schema, your general kitchen schema, which tells you, okay, there's probably a sink in that kitchen, there's a stove in that kitchen, and some cupboards in that kitchen. So you use that past information rather than actually encoding all of the information from scratch. It's just this limit. I mean, we know it now from taking pictures on your digital phones and cameras. I mean, storing information requires vast amounts of resources and our brains just simply don't have the capacity to do so. And so the reason, so the way to get around this is to just store some approximation. So if you're going to go to your friend's kitchen, um, all you need to remember is you, you were in a kitchen. Um, and then afterwards, when you try to remember that event, you just call up your general kitchen schema, maybe fill in sort of some of the details. Um, and that is a very useful strategy, but of course it does mean that it can lead to errors um, with all of these shortcuts. I mean, it would be that perceptual, um, but also memory. These, effect these effective cognitive strategies can lead to errors. Um, and this is something that's often exploited in, in, in magic as well whereby magicians will try and manipulate your memories so that you're actually remembering something that you've never experienced. Um, and this has got really major implications for eyewitness testimonies where we take eyewitness testimonies really for granted. If someone tells you, oh, I'm really confident that that's what I've seen or witnessed, we assume that's actually the truth. And there's lots of research now, particularly by Elizabeth Loftus, who's shown that even simple questions asked at the time when you're asking someone for re to recall a memory can influence what, what and how they're remembering it. Yeah, I mean, that the, the implications of that one are, are really huge. You actually tell a story in your book about a hot air balloon. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to bring that up because I'll, I'll tell my own story perhaps first because it, um, it was really funny reading that, that chapter. Uh, which is that when I was five, me and my mum had a hot air balloon accident. Um, uh, uh, so a really bad one. We fell from. Well, so this is this is where this is where I feel unable to tell a story because I just don't know what's true. So I, in my mind, I have you know snapshots that my eye took um, in that experience. I remember getting into the balloon. I remember the people there. I remember flying very high above the fields. I remember the storm coming. <laughs> um, and, and I'm pretty sure, and of course this is, this is, uh, 
me being sure has nothing to to do with how accurate I actually am, uh, that all that happened. Uh, and then the facts that I have after is that my, my we definitely fell and my mum definitely had a really broken knee. Um, but I have some really conflicting information. So there's um, so I remember seeing my mum in the mud crawling in this field when we'd fallen in it, um, which is impossible because I've been told that the firemen found this five-year-old boy in a field unconscious. So it's, it's, not, it's not possible that those two things happened. Only one of them could have happened. Uh, and yet I, and it's also not possible because there's some pictures where I'm seeing me <laughs> you know, from someone else's eyes. So yeah. my, um, my memory's gone into full Hollywood mode uh, with that dramatic story. And, uh, and I just don't know what of it's true. And the people around me all say things that, that clearly can't all be true as well. So it's, it's just interesting how, how confused we can be. Yeah, and this, I mean, a lot of these errors happen as a phenomenon known as source monitoring errors, where you, you're presented with lots of different pieces of information. Um, someone may have just simply told you a story, but if you, if you no longer remember the source of that information, you may actually mis mis misinterpret that as you having experienced right. that episode. And so these types of memory errors, can they, they, they creep in very frequently and they can lead to these distorted memories for events that you've just never, that you've never experienced. I mean, there's a, there's a lovely study again, I think it was by, by Elizabeth Loftus, um, where they, Ask people whether they remembered shaking hands with Bugs Bunny in Disney World, um, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's a large, a fairly it's a significant proportion of people were very com very confidently remember that episode. Now, of course, any Disney experts will know that Bugs Bunny can never appear in Disney World, mm -hmm. so that must have been a false memory. And uh, yeah, these types of false memories can creep in very commonly. Mm, Bugs Bunny is going to sue Mickey over, <laughs> over that one. Um, so can, can you just go in a little more when it comes to memory? Can you give us some tangible examples of how, I mean, without uh, sharing, sharing secrets, you're not allowed to share, of course, but maybe some principles behind how a magician can do that, can make me remember things that I, the one from. Um, so a lot of this is, I mean, I guess memory happens on lots of different levels um, in some ways in terms of what you actually remember and what you don't. So the vast majority of the information, I mean, if again, as a cognitive psychologist, I take a very much an information processing approach to all of this. And if we want to remember something, the first, first you need to actually encode all of that information. So you need all of that information. My chapter on on attentional misdirection illustrates that in actual fact the majority of the information that is out there we don't we, we don't even encode it um, so that's kind of like the first level once you've encoded it will starts to kick in so unless you've actually encoded it you can't really remember it anyway um, state a lot of the information that we hold in short-term memory simply forget so it's all only a minority of the information that actually then goes into a more permanent memory. I mean, I call it permanent. It's not permanent, really, because it's constant. It's very fluid. Memory is a very fluid process. Um, so, on one hand, magicians can manipulate what you what you, what is, is that you simply don't remember. I mean, if I think, um, I don't know, I don't know where most of us are, but most 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 will have a coin. Um, 
I mean, I'm just holding a 1P coin in front of me. And uh, if I ask listeners which way the, 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 the person on the coin is looking, most of you probably won't have any idea. You have the coin thousands of times. Um, just because you've looked at it doesn't mean you remember the direction that the person on the coin is actually looking. So that's simply forgetting. It's simply because it's not relevant to you. Um, it doesn't matter which way the person on the coin is looking. You don't actually encode that information. So that's about forgetting. Um, but the, I think the even more interesting aspect relates to misremembering. Um, so this is known as false memory. And then again, in the magic context, that can have really major implications by, for example, in a card trick, I might shuffle the cards and later on when I'm telling you what you've done, I will tell you that you've shuffled the cards. Mm. This is a very mm. small detail, the difference between me shuffling the cards and you shuffling, but that can have really major implications and what kinds of tricks that you can do because I can control the cards. Uh, you, if, if, if you're shuffling them, they are genuinely random. If I shuffle them, I can make sure that they're not, yeah, that they're not random. And so by giving you these, this information after the trick has happened, that may prevent you from actually accurately reconstructing them. So you then maybe falsely remember that it was you who shuffled the cards rather than me, since I've given you that suggestive information. So we've just been speaking about uh, how magicians can, can sort of control to some degree our memories. Can you can you expand a bit on uh, on what what I think you've called mind control more broadly with with um, with hypnosis and and other and other techniques, and then we'll get on to free will perhaps a bit more. Yeah. So mind control refers to the ability to try and control someone's mind, and there's been a really long and dark history of government agencies and anyone really trying to find a way in which you can actually control someone else. Um, but um, again, within magic, magicians have developed very powerful tools to manipulate your decisions. So for example, in a card trick, you may feel that you've chosen a free, uh, had a free choice about the card that you've chosen, and yet the magician was in full control over the outcome from the beginning on. Now, as a psychologist, we're really interested in this because it allows us to study really the ease by which your mind can be manipulated. And and I think um, to Darren Brown, for instance, is is an example you've used quite a lot. And his tricks, I mean, I watched one in preparation for this interview. I was watching for one where he he gets someone to try and kill a kitten, and it's just it's just absurd. But I think you've shown some doubts about. Because he, he, he famously unveils how he did it at the end. Uh, and I believe you have some doubts as to whether the explanation that's given is, is often the accurate one. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's not really. I, 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 I don't have any right or I don't have any rights to reveal how other people's, other magicians' tricks are done. But, but, but Darren Brown, there is a danger. I mean, I mean First of all, I absolutely love Darren Brown's performances. He's one of my favorite magicians. But from a psychological point of view, it's really it's a little bit problematic in that he quite often claims that he's manipulating your mind in ways that he's not actually doing. Um, and so quite a lot when you're watching someone like Darren Brown, there's a lot more to the illusions than he may explain to you. So even though he may 
explain exactly how it's done and um, that's not the actual that's not the actual method that's not to say that magicians don't have these types of principles i mean in a lot of their and brown's principles are often more elaborate than the types of principles that are usually used by magicians and i'm but i mean i guess here so if the if the if the rationale he's giving and other magicians i guess give at the end are not necessarily accurate is the fact that that person was controlled to do something that they would they would deem something they shouldn't do for instance is that really happening well yeah that happens and we've known this for a long time um so stanley milgram he's a very famous psychologist who carried out very influential studies back in the 50s and the 60s in which participants were invited to his lab and uh, they had someone someone hooked up to a to an electric shock machine and just the pure authority used by the experimenter actually led to a lot of their a lot of the participants actually following the commands and administering very painful if not fatal electric shocks um, and again intuitively you think well surely most people would not follow these orders and yet the evidence suggests otherwise and this is, I mean, we've known this from a lot of, like if you think about Nazi Germany, where people will follow orders and do things that under other, situa other situations they wouldn't necessarily do. So that form of compliance is very effective, and we've known about this for a long time. I think magic is slightly different. Like the kind of forces that magicians typically use, that this type of force compliance, you, you, you know how you are being... To an extent, you know how you're being manipulated. Um, with the magician's force, you don't you don't know that your mind is being manipulated, or you don't know that your decision is being manipulated, um, and so it actually works covertly rather than overtly. Mm. And so, so this this highlights some um, some limitations to the to the degree to which we're in control, or or at least it highlights that we overestimate the degree to where to which we're in control. You've, you've mentioned free will a few times in this conversation and, and quite a bit in your book. Can you just tell us a bit more about, about where you stand on that and, and how your thoughts are developing around that subject? Yeah, I mean, well, there's, I guess there's two sides to the discussion. Um, there's one just on the, the, the philosophical concept of free will and philosophers spent 2,000 years arguing about this and I don't think that's a debate that we're going to be able to solve within this podcast and I definitely don't think solve it in my, in my book either. Um, that's a very difficult one to to solve. And But I guess the take-home message is that you can argue, I think you can argue it either case. Um, as a psychologist, I'm much more interested in people's experience. Um, so if you do an action and you feel like you are in control of that action. So, because that's something that we can then actually measure. Now, intuitively, and most of the time, at least for me, when I'm doing something, when I'm turning on a switch or I'm picking up a cup of coffee, I feel that I am consciously making a decision to carry out these actions. But I think what a lot of psychological research and neuroscience is now revealing is that that sense of free will that we have in many situations that could potentially be an illusion. And it's one of these illusions that again, magicians can exploit.
Right. And perhaps this gets this gets us on to to the topic of morals a little bit more as well, of course, because because someone being I mean, you use the word exploit, uh, which is a term typically typically that has negative connotations. Um, and I'm interested in this when it comes to magic as well, because it seems that the history of magic is really interesting in that uh, in that you know magic is done to to people, and then and yet it seems that there's been people using these tricks in in different ways from 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 people telling you that that a ghost has is communicating through you, and that's why things in the room are moving or or you're selecting specific letters. Um, and and claiming some sort of supernatural power to to real skepticism. So I'm thinking uh, I've read a little bit into James Randi and and how he sort of made it a a life journey to um, to to expose people that he felt were frauds. And that my my sense is that what Randi was saying is if you if you are tricking someone uh, who's paying you under the guise of entertainment and you are telling them this is all the trick i'm not telling you how but i am tricking you that's one thing but if you're claiming some magical abilities uh, that's a that's a slightly different topic um so perhaps you as a as a magician you can you can tell me a little bit more about about the the morals or the kind of conversations that happen within magic magic circles around around these morals yeah well that's a high is a highly topical and a really interesting co- question really um now there's two sides to this so on the one hand a lot of these tricks and illusions have been exploited in lots of domains i mean you've mentioned like yeah for example spiritualism which is a movement that was really fueled by tricksters using magic principles to get people to experience some of these manifestations or in a seance room as well and at the same time, a lot of magicians, and you mentioned Randy, but also Houdini as well, who was a very prominent figure in the skeptical movement and used his magic knowledge to try and uncover some of these tricksters. And indeed, I mean, it's interesting with magic and in in some ways, yeah, it's, it's magic. A lot of magicians like to perceive themselves as being honest deceivers in that they lie to you in their performance that's part of their performance well they're honest about lying yeah well they are honest about their deception i mean that's kind of at the center really of a lot of magic um and but they're still performing these kinds of things um now magicians the, the way around the whole exploitative nature is by giving disclaimers so by telling the audience beforehand hey i'm a magician i'm using tricks and so what you are seeing isn't actually real the problem with this is that it doesn't actually seem to have that much of an impact so a line of research that we've been doing for the last five years this is in collaboration with professor christine moore at lausanne university here we've been lo- looking at how these magical experiences, so how these anomalous experiences can influence people's beliefs about what is possible. Um, in a typical kind of experiment, we get a magician to use magic tricks to stage a spiritual phenomena. So in these types of experiments, the magician claims that he is reading someone's mind and contacting the dead. 
And what we've shown is that a surprising large proportion of our students actually believe that this is genuine. They genuinely believe that it's possible to contact the dead or read someone's minds. And I've been, I've been astonished by some of these findings. But the thing that's really most worrying and most shocking is that even if it doesn't even actually tell people that they're seeing a magician rather than a pure psychic, they still believe it's genuine. In actual fact, simply telling someone is a magician or a psychic has a very small impact on the extent to which they believe that it's a genuine spiritual phenomena. And uh, we have tested this on more than one and a half thousand individuals. And we have people who are explicitly told they're seeing a magician and yet they still believe that the person has got genuine psychic powers. Now, this is astonishing, and it's really very worrying from several perspectives. Um, for one, if we think about it in the smaller context of magic, so that disclaimer of claiming that you are honest about your deception, well, okay, legally that works, but from a psychological perspective, simply actually telling the audience that you're using tricks doesn't really prevent people from actually believing that what they're seeing is real. And talking to a lot of magicians, and based on my personal experience, I will. it's obvious that a lot of people, particularly with mentalism, so mentalism is a form of magic that involves mind reading rather than just making physical objects. <coughs> Um, disappear or appear uh, that a lot of people genuinely believe that that's real i mean that, that that's uh that is just amazing isn't it that you yeah. the, and and i think you say in your book that you would fall for that too potentially or that that we we rational thinkers may may also fall for it yeah i think we rational thinkers may then dismiss things that may be tr- maybe maybe genuine we all we all the way that we interpret the world is very heavily influenced by our prior beliefs mm-hmm. um, now i think this has got a really major implication for for fake news and misinformation so we are now living in a world where we are constantly being bombarded with vast amounts of misinformation i think more so than we probably ever have and um what this research is really telling us is that even if you know that it's wrong and a lie, that it can still have an impact on your, on your beliefs. Well, I mean, it's, it's also saying, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that a conspiracy theorist website um, that, that, you know, is, is writing fake news for a particular political agenda could even tell you that that's what it's doing and people yeah. would still potentially believe what's in it. Yeah, and indeed, again, there's, 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 there's quite a lot of more recent research that shows that a lot of these kinds of stories, so even if people know that it's wrong, um, in the long term, they can still have an impact. And again, I mean, we've talked about memory before, and I mentioned this whole thing about source monitoring errors. And I think a similar process can happen here as well, whereby you're given this information, this information is stored somewhere in our brain, um, but you may simply forget the tag, this was a false piece of information. And then once that tag has disappeared, then that piece of information will have an influence on your subsequent reasoning. Mm, this is this is scary and not promising. I mean, I mean, I mean, I guess it it for maybe one positive to take from it is that there's no downside to being transparent in some sense. So some of the research or, or writing I've been doing recently has been about um, addictive design 
particularly by the big tech platforms. So how they'll, they'll study cognitive biases and then design platforms which addict us uh, by playing on those very biases. And so that's something I've been uh, kind of suggesting could be great would be for there to be a, a legal requirement for those platforms to explain the tricks that they're doing to me, or at least to say that they're doing tricks on me. Um, and it seems, it seems that actually there'd be no downside for them because even if they tell me that they're exploiting my confirmation bias, uh, I, will still, I, will, I will still believe that they're not or something like that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is what's, re- I think this is what's really worrying. I mean, this, for me, this has been some of the most unsettling research that we've been carrying out because, yeah, even if you know that it's, even, even if you know that it's wrong, it will still have an impact. Um, it's only really once we actually explicitly tell people how the tricks are done um, that that it disappears. Um, so I think you can counter it. And we're really interested in trying to understand some of the cognitive mechanisms that are responsible for these belief changes. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess uh, it's, it's, it's amazing that you can, through something that I think is, is perhaps seen as lighthearted or, or fun, certainly, is magic, you actually end up exploring some implications for propaganda, politics, uh, tech, like mass, mass, mass uses of technology, um, and that's that's really fascinating. I think. Yeah, yeah. Do you know if any of your research has been applied in those fields or or anything like that? Um, not directly. Well, there was one paper I recently came across. Um, I think it was a Korean. IT group. They were um, yeah computer scientists, and uh, they used my misdirection findings to develop an application that allowed you to covertly answer Facebook messages and Twitter feeds whilst giving others the impression that you're actually working. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think a fairly innocent yeah, a fairly innocent. <laughs> A fairly innocent way, but uh, we are. I mean, we have got a research project which is funded by the, Austra- uh, the by the Australian Research Council. Um, yes, looking at tell us a bit more about that. Well, this is looking at artificial intelligence and looking at whether we can actually implement some of these distractive or some of these manipulative principles into IT systems as a way of really preventing or increasing cybersecurity as well. Um, so there's a lot, there's often there is an applied side to a lot of this research as well. Yeah, there was some, um, I was working on a, on a direct democracy platform for a while and something I was um, starting to try and get some, some researchers around was how, was the, the many biases that are in play when we're about to vote on an issue. Uh, would it be possible to prime people to somehow neutralize some of those biases? So, for instance, if you're going with a pre-existing belief, uh, can, you, can you be faced with, with enough different perspectives uh, before, before taking your decision uh, that you're, you're less likely to, to, to just fully buy into your initial, um, your initial belief, let's say? So somehow the primer becomes a way of giving people back some agency um, I think I think could be interesting. So I'm I'm just thinking the the field of magic is is actually a a super fascinating one to perhaps see how how you could also do the opposite. Like in, in what situations do we give people back agency so that they can't have their mind control? That that might 
give us some findings that can be applied in some really important areas. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think, I mean, that's the thing. I, I, mean, I do think, and this is what I mentioned right at the beginning, that magic taps into so many fundamental psychological processes, which means that it can be applied to study a very wide range of topics. Great. So, I mean, this has been, this has been really interesting to me. Uh, is, is there anything that we've, we've not discussed from your research that you feel is really key for people to hear out or, or something you're particularly working on at the moment that's just catching your interest that you want to bring up? No, I, I mean, I, we've, covered quite, we've covered quite a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the science of magic is a very new field of study. Um, it's expanded a lot in the last, yeah, in the last few years. And I mean, what I tried to do with the book as well is using magic really as a way of exploring how the human mind works. And so even if you don't, even if you're not interested, I think even if you're not interested in magic, or even if you don't like magic, I think magic still provides us with a great tool to try and ask some of these questions and actually explore the psychology and psychological mechanisms that underlies them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I read the book, uh, I'd probably classify highly as a skeptic, but also finding magic really, really like fun and interesting. And both of those sides were met for me. So, so I, I definitely agree that if you're, even if you're coming as someone who hates magic, this could be really interesting uh, for you to read. So <laughs> I, def I definitely <laughs> recommend it. And it's Experiencing the Impossible. Um, yeah, it's called Experiencing the Impossible, The Science of Magic, uh, published by MIT Press. And you can find that on, on Amazon and all the other places. Yes. Is, yeah. is there anywhere else that you'd like to, di to direct rather than misdirect people's attention to, Gustav, a website or anything like that? A website. Um, if you're interested, if you're more interested in the science of magic, uh, we've also got the Science of Magic Association, uh, which has got its website. So if you Google that, that will take you to the association. We organise regular conferences as well, which are open for magicians, non-magicians, and anyone just interested in it, in, in the topic more generally as well. And also we managed to attract some of the world's best magicians as well so these conferences always have a magic show as well um very very high standard yeah, awesome so if you're if you're going there to be a psychology geek that's great and if you're going there to be a magic geek that's great too you'll you'll get both yeah or even i mean it's not just psychology i mean i'm a psychologist so i look at it very much from a psychological perspective but if you're interested in well-being or if you're interested in computer sciences or philosophy or sociology, um, yeah, the science of magic tries to just get a more academic and a more scientific approach, yeah, using a more scientific approach to understanding magic. Um, and it can be really applied to a very broad range of topics. Great, thanks. And actually, there's just one last topic that perhaps we didn't touch on that I wanted to bring up, which is magic and children. Um, I believe you've done, have you done some work uh, in terms of using magic to help children learn uh, about science? Is that right? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we have got some, Matt Pritchard, he's, he, he, he works a lot on this, but um, I mean, so far, I guess, in, I mean, yeah, one topic that we haven't, so far, a lot of topics have sounded a little bit more negative and right. of, <laughs> exploiting, manipulating, but there's a lot more to magic really than this. And I think maybe this podcast has given a bit of a more negative skew on this, <laughs> but uh, magic also, it taps into some really positive 
psychological principles as well. So the joy that you experience whilst watching the magic. And also just the way that, so, so we've been doing quite a lot of research and using magic as a way of enhancing people's well-being as well. Because what we found is that by teaching people how to perform magic, that often that really makes them feel better about themselves as well. And so we're trying to tap into a lot of these positive psychological principles to see whether we can use magic as an approach to helping people. Um, and even like here at Goldsmiths now, our students, our first year students, can participate in magic workshops where we teach them how to perform magic over three weeks. And what we find is that actually helps them to relate with others as well on the course. Um, it helps them about how they feel about themselves. And these kinds of soft skills and these kind of building this type of resilience, I think is very important to actually help and support our students throughout their degrees. So um, yeah, that's a very new line of research that uh, Steve Bogansky, one of my PhD students, is exploring at the moment. Yeah, I'm curious about that. I mean, is, is it that the the uh, just the fact of doing a workshop and the, the social interactions that go on in that setting provide a kind of team building dynamic? Or is there something about magic specifically uh, that seems uh, to enhance well-being? Well, I mean, uh, well uh, it's not like a magic, <laughs> it's not like a magic bullet um, <laughs> but i think magic can uh, i think it can just tap into interesting psychological mechanisms for one it doesn't take that much to be able to learn something that like when you're watching a magic trick you watch it and you go oh, i have no idea how that is possible um and i could never do this and it doesn't really take that much for us to be able to teach someone to actually perform one of these tricks and that can be very empowering and we've again we've got some data to show that even a small intervention like that can actually change the way people feel about learning new skills as well. So I think that's quite empowering. I also think just the fact that you're learning something that nobody, nobody in your surrounding can do. So especially it's very important in an academic context where um, everybody's got very different abilities and different things. Um, but with magic, if nobody can actually, if nobody's any idea in how you can, how you can do magic, everybody's starting at a level playing field and to build up a team building experience that can be really useful. Um, but we're still really exploring a lot of these principles. I remember actually, I think it's towards the end of your book, you mentioned how I think there was a study done with, with scenes from Harry Potter, where if, if, uh, if kids had seen a scene, they split them between, is it scenes where uh, no magic occurs and scenes where magic occurs and the magic scenes had more creative output from from those children after is that right yeah so this is a lovely study by eugene zabotsky who showed that actually showing kids magic uh, harry potter content made them more creative um, and again this is something that we are exploring in the magic lab um, in more detail as well so the way that magic can actually foster sort of creative thinking in different ways great so i, I can feel wonderful about my eight-year-old watching loads of harry potter and re reading all the books now <laughs> thanks thanks you've made so, so well, let's leave on that positive you've made me feel like a great parent <laughs> all right thanks so much for your time gustavo i appreciate it thank you john cheers bye bye i hope you enjoyed that conversation with gustavo about the science of magic 
Uh, and if you want to support the podcast, please do so. You can do it by rating it on iTunes, by subscribing to the newsletter at johnbarnes.me forward slash newsletter, or by clicking the support button on my website to support it on a pay-what-you-want monthly basis. All of the above would be highly helpful. And, of course, please get in touch as well to give me thoughts, feedback, all sorts. Have a lovely day. Take care. Bye.